Uh, good morning to you all. So we are, of course, continuing with our study of 2 Corinthians. Um, with the rapid pace that we've set so far, I'm confident that by December 2030 we'll be finished. <laughs> Today we're in chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. So please, can you turn there? If you happen to be using an electronic device, I'll be preaching from the New King James Version. But in any event, I'll have the, the verses up on the overhead. In our last study, we saw how the Christians should not ever have any fear of what might happen to them physically here on earth, because God has promised and prepared a far better home for each one of us in heaven. Paul uses a metaphor of clothing and housing for the flesh and the body to illustrate his argument. So, can we look forward to a really nice modern house or some run-down, drafty villa? Well, Paul writes that he's looking forward so much to his own version that he is groaning with anticipation. And from that language, it looks as though he is describing a billionaire's mansion. So we can imagine it's probably quite good. Let's see what else he has to say on the subject. I'm going to start reading back in chapter 4 because I feel that the break created in chapters here between 4 and 5 disconnects what other, otherwise is a complete thought. So I'll start 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with a habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, if you look through what I've just read, I hope you'll understand that I had some difficulty with getting this sermon started. Because, when I read through this particular bit and compared it to what we had discussed last time, well, they look pretty much identical. So I was tempted. Maybe I should just skip over this bit with a cursory mention, more of the same, or perhaps pretend it wasn't there at all. Well, the trouble is you can't do that with Scripture, because if we truly believe that it's all inspired and valuable, then we'd have to be leaving something valuable behind. So I puzzled and, and I prayed over it a bit. And after a while I noticed that there is a difference. Compare the phrases to be in 5 verse 2 and are in in 5 verse 3. They are future tense and present tense. So although he is groaning in both, Paul is writing first about the destination and then about the journey. So I've titled today's sermon, Are We There Yet? Because it seems to me that this is perhaps what he is getting at. 
It's one thing to be looking forward to a Christmas holiday in the Coromandel, but one still has to endure the roadworks, traffic congestion and bladder stops along the way. Will the lure of the Pahutakawas in bloom and the white sand keep us going? Or will we give up because of the two-hour queue at Thames and return home? Paul wants us to to be encouraged to press on regardless. It's also like this in our Christian walk. Heaven is certainly marvelous, but before we get there, we will need to endure all kinds of things. Persecution, illness, the death of loved ones, any number of distracting and exhausting difficulties. And these things can hold us back from the work that must be done along the way and possibly even drive us past the are we there yet stage to the point where we just throw our hands up in the air and get out of the car altogether. I'm not doing this anymore. It's too hard. I don't think it's any news to, to any of us that Paul was by no means a stranger to extreme hardship himself. And yet his motivation to carry on to the end of the journey no matter what assails him along the way, remains bright and powerful. He wants to share with all who suffer why that is so, and also remind us about the wonderful traveling companion that all believers do share, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some more detail. The word groan, which is repeated in verses 2 and 4, I believe is key. In the Greek, the root of this word means narrow or constricted, as in when one is squeezed or pressed by circumstances, and it describes an inward, unexpressible feeling of sorrow to to sigh or groan as the sense carried. And I really like this picture of being squeezed. As it's used in verse 2, it helps me to capture the depth of a future tense longing. You know, when you groan, you're not just letting go a little silent sigh. But the sound is driven from deep within you. The whole body is tense with emotion and every muscle is quivering with the effort of expressing the longing to be at home with peace with the Lord. As used in verse 4, for the present tense, it reminds me of how Christians are often squeezed during life's journey by circumstance. And then that picture immediately reminds me of something similar that Paul has just written back in chapter 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Do you see how this all ties together? That although we're just looking at a small part of this letter to the Corinthians today, that it's just a jigsaw piece fragment of a larger, coherent picture with the same themes and messages. It's asking us and showing us, how does the Christian cope with pressure? In our Bibles, we will find the answers. And we are so fortunate that the Lord equipped Paul with these beautiful writing skills. However, our admiration for his technique must not divert us from the most important reminder of our purpose It's carried in verse 10. We may groan and be oppressed, but it is not without reason. And that reason is to show Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He must must always be at the center of everything we do. Why? 
Because there is groaning. And then there is groaning. Oh. In the first case, we groan because we constantly suffer the consequences of our sin and life in a broken and violent world. Wars, tsunamis, hurricanes, illness, drugs, alcohol, family violence. What if it were all for nothing? What if there was no way out that life just means it, that we suffer and then we die? Well, that would be something worth groaning about and utter misery. But there's always the second, a completely different kind of groaning, the sort that Paul's writing about here, where our groans are a deep expression of the longing to grasp hold of the promise of a very different and eternal life. We didn't create that promise ourselves, and we never could. Jesus was the only one who could, and he did it by dying on that cross, and that is why he must be the center of everything that we do. Our groans are always connected, on the one hand, because we are pressed in by when and where we are. On the other, because we long to be there for good, away from that pressing, to be with Jesus forever, where mortality has been swallowed up by life eternal. Spurgeon wrote, The Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. Now, there's a serious matter here that I want to put to bed. I don't want anyone hearing this to imagine in the very slightest that since it is so much better to be with the Lord than here on earth, that they should deliberately seek to end their own life, or for that matter, anyone else's. Absolutely and emphatically, no. In the first instance, the sixth of the Ten Commandments given by God to Israel in Exodus 20 is, You shall not murder. And that includes yourself. And the fact that the instruction was given at this level, a very certain, <laughs> you shall not, directly given by God himself, means that it has the highest possible weight and should not be disobeyed. Secondly, while we live, the Lord has prepared work to do in us and by us. Philippians 1.6 He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, walk in them. Friends, if God has made this investment in working in and through our lives, then it's not our place to choose when to end it. The proper response, even though we may be struggling and we can see something better in front of us, is to earnestly seek for the Holy Spirit's prompting as he guides us through this work of sanctification and also to look for the opportunities that he provides for us to show the love of Christ to other, others in practical ways. Like we spoke about earlier, praying for each other. Let's get back to our text now and its encouragement of perseverance. I want to show, share this great illustration that I found. A man in the middle of many painful trials took a walk in his neighborhood and he saw a construction crew at work in a big church. He stood and watched a stone craftsman work a long time on a block but could not see where the block would fit because the church appeared to be finished. He watched the man work on the block carefully 
and methodically, slowly shaping it into a precise pattern. Finally, he asked, Why are you spending so much time chipping and shaping that block? The craftsman pointed up to the top of the nearly completed steeple and said, I'm shaping it down here so that it will fit in up there. The man in the middle of the trials instantly, instantly knew that that was God's message to him. He was being prepared down here so that he would fit in up in heaven. Maybe I should have just read that as my sermon. <laughs> God meant us to be where we are, doing what we are doing, and experiencing what we are experiencing so that we will fit in up there. Let's talk now about verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is, is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now I see a paradox here. What we look forward to, what we wait for and long for and groan for, well, it already is. In eternity past, before time began, God had already decided who would be saved. Then at the right time, he executed his plan for their redemption. Looking to the future to come, he will give them, he will give us, glorified resurrection bodies. The Lord's not going to be scurrying around at the last moment trying to make a cunning plan. He isn't caught out by events beyond his control. He always has these three things firmly grasped in his hands. Our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And although from our perspective that glorification is yet to come, from God's perspective, it already is. I want to encourage you to spend some time later reflecting on that. It's very important. As humans, we really like to think that we're always in control of everything. But really that isn't true at all. We know that it's a fallacy in our hearts. But we still make our mouths speak otherwise. We say we will do this or that, go here or there, build something up or tear it down. We have so very many intentions, but that's just what they are. And the longer you live, the more you realize that things can turn to custard in an epic way with absolutely no warning at all, leaving those marvelous intentions high and dry. So intentions are only built on hope. The truth is that while we boast of doings and goings and tearings, there remains some doubt in some corner of our hearts that these things <laughs> really will come to pass. So doubt is always part of our humanity. Unfortunately, it also infects what Scripture promises us. We ask, has God really saved me? Is it certain that I will gain a glorified resurrection body, this new tent that Paul is speaking about here, and so enjoy God forever? Therefore, is it worth suffering for? Yes, I believe that these things are true. Do I doubt sometimes? Yeah, I do. But isn't that one of the parts of the lifelong sanctification journey, that as we learn more and more to be more and more like Jesus, we move increasingly from that precarious perch of doubt into the powerful and steady grasp of God's hand. And there in his hand, 
we can fully appreciate just what the Lord promises us so that we will groan for it as Paul has written here and press forward towards it despite the obstacles that a sin-broken world puts in our way. But there's a really great thing. We do not make that journey alone. Here is God's provision for us in verse 5. God who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Well, the first question that might come to mind for you in reading this is, well, <laughs> when does this giving of the Spirit happen and therefore am, am I that blessed? Well, unfortunately, this matter of timing has become a major point of difference within the church. On the one hand, we have Pentecostals who mostly believe that, that a Christian receives the Holy Spirit in a second experience sometime after salvation. On the other hand, we have a confusing number of different descriptive terms for those who hold that all believers receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And I'm not going to get into the argument today. It's long and it's complicated. But I will say that the position of Wanganui East Baptist Church and myself is a second option. If you are saved, then you are spirit-filled at the same time. And the foundation for that belief lies in 1 Corinthians 12.13. In a section about the unity of the body of Christ, the collective of believers which we know to be the church, Paul writes, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. So there the Holy Spirit is right at the very beginning of a believer's journey. Membership of the body of Christ clearly comes through him. So it's difficult for me to reconcile that truth with the idea of some second and additional experience being necessary to receive his blessing. Therefore, we can say that every Christian can have the confidence that they have been favored by God with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee as written here. Everyone. Now that word guarantee in verse 5 is a very interesting one. In the Greek it is arabon, which means earnest payment. And in Paul's time this was a commercial term that described the down payment of a large proportion of the purchase price given as security to the seller as a guarantee for settlement of the whole. I really like that idea a lot. Earnest payment. To be earnest means to be serious in mind or intention. Such a payment is made with absolutely no intention of buyer's remorse. The sheepish phone call the next day to claim that although I really did want that new fishing rod, my wife made me bring it back because of a family emergency. That's a bogus call, that for sure. God has made an extremely earnest payment to those who genuinely call Jesus Lord. God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit has been given to every one of us to show that we can certainly look forward to the full experience of the whole Trinity. God and humans dwelling together on a new earth. Creator and creation connected as was always intended. Well, I cannot imagine any more earnest signal of intent than God. God literally inside my heart. Can you? Can you? Of course it doesn't end with that. We know the Holy Spirit isn't just there, kind of hanging around until the Father decides to wind things up. No, he's, he's active, a precious resource for us. 
I believe it's pretty obvious that there's no way to get into any special detail on the ways that he does so today because it's, it's a vast topic. But here's a list of some of the ways that he's involved in our lives. He empowers us. He gives assurance of salvation to us. Gives evidence of God's presence. Gives life and power for service. He guides and directs God's people. He illumines, and that means that he teaches and reveals things about the nature of God so that we can understand them. He purifies. He is the source of revelation to prophets and apostles, and he unifies the body of the church, just as we've talked about in Romans. That's by no means a complete list, yet even so it is striking just how crucial and central the Spirit is to our spiritual and physical lives. I ask you, just try to imagine for a moment what things would be like without him. No power, no assurance, no enabling for service, no guiding, no illuminating, no purifying, no revelation, no unification. We would be in such a lot of trouble. It would be like a new car, but without an engine. Really great to look at, shiny, comfortable to sit in, lots of room in the boot for travel bags. Hey, the wipers even switch on automatically when it rains. But what use are all these things if the car can't move at all? Maybe you could use all that space for a load of soil and some pot plants. Friends, by giving us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, God has not only ensured that we have the comfort and certainty of knowing where we are going, but we have received the means to get there by the proper route. A roaring engine for that shiny car. The question is, will we use those means or will we strike off into some alternative route, imagining that it might be more scenic or shorter? We've seen today a long list of the things that the Holy Spirit can do in our lives to keep us on the motorway. And they are very impressive, but not one of them will work as intended unless, unless we do our part too. Real success, measured by our increasing likeness to the character of Jesus, only comes when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, when we seek Him out in our highway code, the Bible when we watch for his promptings in the road signs and we obey them. Otherwise, we may find ourselves endlessly on the curves and hills of the paraparas, asking anyone who will listen, are we there yet? The better solution is that we always arrive in him, through him, and with him. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is impossible for us to give proper meaning to the guarantee that you have given us in the Holy Spirit. We, <laughs> we cannot thank you enough to have you living in us, to have you doing all these things for us and with us. 
It is a very deep and great privilege. Father, I would pray that we would not take that for granted. We would not take Holy Spirit's presence for granted and we would not take the means by which he was brought there, Christ's death, for granted. And so, Lord, we would be moved to cooperate with your Spirit as we ought so that the life of Jesus may be shown in us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.